Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. This is Sarah Reeves from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We're proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. So if you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, Go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. In keeping with the theme of water regeneration this month, I spoke with Rob Avis, the co-author along with Michelle Avis of their book in the New Society Essentials series called Rainwater Harvesting. Now, Rob and Michelle founded Verge Permaculture, an award-winning design consulting and education company in Calgary, Alberta, after years of international training in renewable energy and regenerative design. Since its founding, Verge has helped more than a thousand students and clients to design and create integrated systems for shelter, energy, water, waste, and food, all while supporting their local economy and regenerating the land. Through their design and consulting, they create havens that produce their own energy and food, harvest water, cycle nutrients, and restore the surrounding ecosystems, enabling property owners to thrive no matter what. Now, with such a broad range of knowledge, experience, and expertise, we focus mainly on rainwater harvesting techniques and systems in this episode as an entry into the larger concept of watershed regeneration and revival. In this session, Rob explains some of the key components of rainwater harvesting systems and the ways that you can treat and filter water for various uses. We talk at length about why expensive filters and disinfectants are often unnecessary, even for most potable water uses, and the different ways you can keep your stored rainwater clean. Rob also speaks about how rainwater harvesting systems fit into a larger system aimed towards water resilience in multiple living contexts from urban to rural applications. Now, I've been a fan of Verge Permaculture and all their great work for some time now, and I'm intending to create a larger series of in-depth talks with Rob and Michelle in the future. 
So if you enjoy this episode and have further questions that you'd like to hear us cover in future talks, then by all means send your questions and feedback to me at info at AbundantEdge.com or in the comments in the show notes on the website. I hope you get as much out of this talk as I did, so I'll turn things over now to Rob. Hey Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, man. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Look, I've got a ton of questions for you about rainwater harvesting in particular and the book that you recently wrote for New Society Publishers. But before I get to all of that, let's start with what inspired you to work on rainwater harvesting systems as a part of a much larger strategy for security, resilience, and regeneration. Yeah, great question. Um, Well, I I think that uh, it all started off uh, when we... Uh, started going down our per- the permaculture path, and we started recognizing that um, the world was a lot less black and white than uh, than it originally appeared. So Michelle and I both kind of uh, cut our teeth in the oil and gas industry uh, as pipeline engineers, and um, you know we were designing facilities and pipelines to bring natural gas and oil into cities so that humans could operate cars and buildings in the cold climate that is Canada, and I mean really North America and the world. And um, what we found there was <clears throat> this concept that, you know, uh, humans require these resources and th- this is the, the cultural myth that existed and that there was really no alternative to the way that we are currently operating. And uh, that was the, the cultural myth that was going on in Calgary at the time. And I started to kind of uncover things like peak oil and climate change and um, even little bits about soil erosion and, you know, water depletion. And it really got us thinking that if this is the cultural myth that, and it's true, then we're hooped. Um, and so luckily I ended up getting a, a three minute video in my inbox, greening the desert, which most permaculturists have seen at this point. And, um, called my wife up and said, we need to quit our jobs and, and travel and, and learn about this thing called permaculture and learn about renewable energy and see if there are other cultural narratives out there that um, allow humans to be just as positive as they are negative. And so we ended up spending about six months in Australia, um, three of which I, I lived on Jeff Lawton's farm and we visited as many different permaculture operations down there as we could find. And they were all living on rainwater. And so... Um, another cultural myth that existed in our society was that rainwater starts as dirty and uh, at best it can be used for toilet flushing and subsurface irrigation. Yet so much of the world relies on the annual fall of rainfall in order to survive. And so this really got us questioning <clears throat> um, why we have these cultural myths and narratives around both the energy, the water, the food. And we really started to question everything. And that um, was a bit of a ball of wax because when we came back to Canada, all of a sudden we couldn't just operate in the way that we had been operating because now we knew that there were other ways. Um, and that really kind of thrust us onto our, onto our current journey. Remarkable. Now, let's start from the beginning and talk about some of the ways that rainwater can be utilized in a home or even in a garden in a, in a residential situation? I mean, um, any way that you typically use what you would classify as potable grid-based water can be replaced by rainwater if it's harvested and managed correctly. Um, and in a lot of cases, rainwater is a superior resource to grid-based water. 
Um, and we could kind of get into all of the reasons why that is. But, uh, I mean, you can use it for drinking. You can use it for, um, uh, you know, washing your hands, showering, ba bathing. Um, hopefully, if you're harvesting rainwater, you recognize how... Um, how, how dear it is and you're not flushing toilets with it but um and then within the garden you know any kind of irrigation works uh that you might have absolutely benefits from rainwater um, the advantages of irrigating with rainwater is that it's it's very uh light on the mineral side of things and so you're not going to plug up um irrigation points with it like drip irrigators um, you're not going to salt the soils um, and especially in the northern hemisphere well, this is kind of an unknown fact but 50 percent of our nitrogen comes in the form of rainwater um, through this really interesting interaction with uh, lightning so as uh, lightning interacts with air and rain follows um, it actually changes the chemical composition or the the compound the nitrogen compound in the air um, to be a, a soluble nitrate and then um, the rainwater will pick it up and bring it down to the ground. So um, water, rainwater actually ends up being a fertilizer um, as well as this, this wonderful hydration element. All right. So in your professional opinion, now you alluded to this a second ago, is it usually necessary to install a disinfection and sterilization equipment in a rainwater harvesting or storage system? So... What I'll say is that depending on what where your jurisdiction is will depend on what your codes require you to to do, um, and every jurisdiction is going to have a different um, take on what is and is not required. The other thing that I'm going to say to you though is that currently and for the last hundred plus years in Australia, over three million Australians drink rainwater without any end of line treatment. And the research that we uncovered as a result of writing the book that we're talking about right now showed that there are even slight statistical um, significant observations that showed that children that drank rainwater were actually marginally healthier than children that drank chlorinated grid-based water. So, yes, um, when we're, you know, I have to be, as an engineer, I have to be careful about telling people that like they have to follow the code. Um, however, um, we have a huge epidemiological case study that we can draw from, which is Australia and even places like where you're calling in from today, um, where pe people are drinking rainwater successfully without end, we'll call it end of line treatment. Now, the other important thing to notice or recognize or acknowledge is that just because you don't have a UV filter or a particulate filter or a carbon filter on the back end of a rainwater system, it doesn't mean that there is not filtration and, and water quality improvement mechanisms occurring within a rainwater harvesting system, which I'll refer to as a treatment train. Okay, well, let's explore that a little bit. Walk me through some of the options from the point of contact where rain first enters until the end point of use that a rainwater harvesting system can clean the water without using expensive filters or disinfectant appliances. So um, as part of this, I'll, I'll send you over an infographic that you can link uh, in, in your show notes, um, which kind of uh, has a, a visual representation of this treatment train. But um, I mean, the treatment train really starts right from the roof. And so a properly designed collection system is going to make sure that there's 
not a lot of vegetation hanging over top of it. Um, that the roof is is clean, and um, and that uh, it's generally going to be an impervious surface, which most roofs are, but not uh, an, like an impervious surface without a lot of roughness, essentially. So water is free to flow over top of the roof, and the roof doesn't accumulate massive amounts of sediment or dirt on it. Um, the water then flows through properly sloped gutters, and. Um, in a lot of the books, it ironically, they talk about, you know, the importance of keeping gutters clean. Um, but some of the research has actually shown that gutters that have debris in them um, actually produce better rainwater because there's a biological uh, cleaning mechanism going on in those gutters. Now, my recommendation is still to keep those gutters clean because we want efficient and effective conveyance. We don't want the water overflowing the gutters because we want to collect the resource. So um, we can find other ways to 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 enhance those biological functions, which we're going to talk about here shortly. Um, so the water uh, moves through those gutters. Now there's all sorts of products out there that put these screens on top of gutters to try and keep the debris out of the gutter itself and, uh, and reduce maintenance. And it turns out that those are not really great solutions. Um, one of the most important components in a, uh, an effective treatment train and collection system is actually UV light. And so we want our roofs to have access to UV light. We want our gutters to have access to UV light. Um, UV is the ultimate disinfectant. And uh, when we put these, these screens over top of gutters, um, we end up removing that UV component from our gutters. Uh, and so, we, and, and the other interesting thing that happens is that um, one of my uh, contractors that I use up here, he's an exterior specialist, has removed more of these systems than he's put in um, because he says the he, it moves the problem four inches up. And so you end up getting this beautiful collection surface for uh, organics, which can actually compromise the, uh, um, the sheathing layer underneath the roof and causing all sorts of dry rot. Yeah, I can imagine. So um, we actually want to to keep things transparent and and open to the sun up there. So then once once we collect it, we want to make sure that the water is then uh, coming down a downspout. The downspout's typically vertical. Um, if it's not, then it'll be um, at an angle. So we got to make sure we have the right um, uh, slopes and things on there to make sure that we get good conveyance. And then we want to we want to send all the water through something called a rain head uh, or a an inline filter. And this is a fine meshed filter. Typically, um, it's got a 45 degree angle on the on the mesh itself. And so any debris that collects on that filter uh, is going to um, be automatically cleaned off. And uh, I can send you a link to what one of these filters looks like so you can put it in the show notes. Um, there's a bunch of products that uh, come right out of Australia. They've kind of perfected this technology. And they're very inexpensive. They're about uh, 50 to $60 and uh, they fit right into your your water harvesting system. Now, a lot of people um, in the rainwater sphere talk about the importance of first flush diverters, and it, it turns out that they're really not as important as everybody makes them out to be. Um, if you're going to use one, there's a lot of controversy around uh, how many liters or gallons you should be diverting from your stream. And basically, for folks who have never heard of this, a first flush diverter basically takes the first flush off the roof and uh, um, basically diverts it away from the tank before it, it goes into the tank and with the idea that this first flush is going to have the most debris in the water. Um, and we'll talk about why it's not really all that important. But 
More often than not, I see first flush diverters that are not maintained, uh, and so they get filled with debris, they plug off, and uh, they go septic. And so they can end up kind of being more detrimental to the system than uh, positive. But if you're going to use one, um, the rule of thumb is, is generally around 10 to 20 liters is the first kind of amount of volume that you want to divert. Um, anything more than that and you get massive diminishing results. So you want to make sure that if you're going to put one in that you're doing maintenance on a regular basis and cleaning the system out and making sure that it's functioning. If you're not the type of guy that, or person to, to want to do that kind of maintenance, then just avoid it altogether and you can save the, the cost of that first flush diverter. The water then goes into the tank um, and we send it into the tank uh, into a pipe that uh, depowers the, the flow of, of water. And we call this the quiet inlet. And we're doing this because we want to make sure that when the water goes into the tank, that it's not stirring up all sorts of sediment. That it, it's, it's literally quietly being introduced into the existing water column. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, it turns out, and the Romans, I'll just back up a second, the Romans were able to observe that water when stored in uh, storages, tanks, um, for long periods of time would improve in quality. They were able to observe that, but they weren't able to understand what was actually or what the mechanism of that quality improvement actually was. And we now have the science to understand that mechanism, which is incredible. And this is probably the biggest insight from writing the book was being able to dig into this research because we had observed it as well in Australia, um, but no one could really tell us what the kind of scientific uh, mechanism actually or mechanisms actually was. And so um, this is one of the reasons that a, a well-designed system is so effective at filtering water. So number one, in a, in a large rain tank where you have um, slow movement of water and um, long periods of time where that water is kind of sitting in that tank, you get sedimentation. And that sedimentation is going to form a sludge layer over time. Now, rainwater itself is actually very low in nutrient, um, and there are microbes that are picked up through the process of raining, through running over the, the roof, and through the gutter, and through the pipes. And so, all those microbes that are in the water are super hungry because there's not a lot of food available. And so, um, these microbes will end up, some of them will get um, uh, dropped out in the sediment in that sludge layer in the bottom. And, and so as water slowly moves across that sludge layer and as that sediment drops out, those microbes are super, super hungry and they will grab onto anything that they can. And so when scientists in Australia did independent research and studies on this sludge layer, they found that when they looked at uh, heavy metal concentrations as one example, um, that there were concentrations as high as 350,000 times that of the center water column um, in that sludge layer, which was a very strong indication that the sludge layer was actually acting as a bioremediation mechanism. And they tested a whole suite of heavy metals. They tested pathogens, bugs, microbes. And so it turns out that these sludge layers are actually held together with polysaccharides, um, which are essentially just complex sugars that are exuded by the microbes themselves. And those polysaccharides create this matrix that actually pulls and, and bioremediates that water. And the same mechanisms are actually going on on the sides of the tanks as well, where the biofilms are forming. 
And so the tank itself is one of the most effective mechanisms uh, for cleaning this rainwater. And you can see massive improvements in rainwater in as little as two weeks. Um, so large storages create very effective bioremediation mechanisms themselves. And I'll just quickly go through the other two mechanisms. Um, there's, there's a series of other ones there, but the two main ones um, are going to be uh, when you take water from that tank and you pressurize it, that instantaneous increase in pressure is going to destroy life, um, destroy some of the negative life. Um, and then if you're running water into a hot water tank, there's actually a process called tindalization, which moves water from one temperature to another temperature really rapidly. Um, and so what goes on there is that as you have this aqueous solution, the, the rainwater tank itself, things like spores and microbes are in a, a non-dormant stage because they're in a, an environment where they can kind of express themselves and be alive as opposed to being dry and dormant. And so when you take a live organism like a spore and you change its pressure and then you change its temperature um, really quickly, you end up destroying it. And so um, th all throughout this system, there are little mechanisms that um, improve the water from source, sorry, from, from this, the, the rain cloud, basically, um, right to the faucet. And so those are the primary, primary mechanisms that we see in... Um, yeah, you know, in the treatment train, essentially. All that is fascinating. And I can't help from a natural building perspective, wonder if you have any recommendations or observations on what type of roof you're using to catch the rainwater and how that might affect the water quality itself. Yeah. So, I mean, from a natural building perspective, um, it, I don't know how much research has been done on, on thatched roofs and things like that, but um, generally speaking, we, we talk about um, uh, materials that um, have fairly uh, low roughness surfaces. So uh, metal roofs are great. Um, they, they do have a lot of embodied energy in them because they're metal, um, but they're fully recyclable and they last for really long periods of time. So we generally, you know, tend to recommend those. And I'm a really big fan of, st of standing seam roofs because the, the fasteners are are uh, not exposed. Um, but I suspect clay roofs, um, in fact, I've read research on clay roofs and, and they can be like clay tiles um, uh, can, be, can be really effective as well. Generally speaking, we want to avoid natural materials like cedar shakes. And so I suspect that thatched, thatched roofs would be similar to that. Um, cedar for sure can leach tannins and um, uh, generally introduce all sorts of additional things that we're trying to avoid. I mean, we really want to keep the nutrient load inside of our rain tank low so that we can get that kind of, um, those microbes working in our favor. We don't want to, we don't want to create, um, or, or collect a soup of nutrients in that tank. It's, it's one of the mechanisms that's occurring there is that, um, I'm trying to remember the scientific name for it, but, uh, the, the microbial, um, uh, exclusion, I think, is what it's called. And so because the microbes are hungry, they they really work hard for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that supports what I've heard around in the natural building community um, for as, as many benefits as natural material roofs have. For one thing, I've never seen a gutter system on a thatch roof. And the preservatives that are naturally in cedar shakes in particular can have a toxic effect on water if you end up storing it. And I've really only had the most success from uh, corrugated metal or other type of laminates 
And I've also heard that asphalt tiles or asphalt shingles um, can also leach petroleum into your water storage tank over time. Yeah, ironically, you can you can actually collect rainwater off of asphalt shingles. Um, I think the big issue that you got to look for there are the you know what they impregnate the asphalt with itself. Sure, it's it's funny we we asphalt itself is kind of a natural material, um, which is kind of a strange thing to say. It's the fungicides and the biocides that they put into it that that can be problematic. Um, the big the other big issue with asphalt is again it's it's a rough surface and so um, it's going to accumulate more debris than a than a smooth surface um and then of course there are other problems with asphalt i mean at best you're going to get a you know 10 to 30 year life cycle on that thing uh, before you're creating an enormous amount of waste and then you've got to replace it versus a metal roof is really there for the life of the building um, as long as it's maintained properly and i mean there's going to be some exceptions to that but um yeah i mean metal is the best i think I, yeah, I'm in favor of it too. It may not be an entirely natural material, but with its infinite recyclability, I think it makes up for it in a lot of other ways. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the maintenance on a system like this. Do rainwater harvesting systems require quite a bit of attention, or is there a pretty big spectrum on the maintenance cycle depending on the system that you install? A lot less than you probably think. So a properly sited and designed system needs to be inspected. So you should be going up and inspecting gutters and your roof and stick your head into the tank. But there's um, a very interesting misconception about actually getting into tanks and desludging and cleaning biofilms and things like that off of the walls. Um, ironically, uh, when you add mains water, so chlorinated or, or sterilized, um, water that's sterilized with some sort of a sterilant in it, um, you end up killing or damaging the biofilms and the sludge layer, which detrimentally affects the quality of the tank. So we actually want to leave it alone. We like, like it, it's kind of a bit of a loner and it, it doesn't really want to be, um, messed around with, um, because doing that will affect its ability to, to do what it does really best. Um, so we want to look in there, make sure there's, you know, no dead animals or anything like that in, inside the tank, um, uh, or any, you know, other kind of things that, that could potentially knock off the ecosystem. Um, and, uh, and so what, you know, inspecting it once or twice a year is probably a good idea. Uh, making sure all the pipes are in, you know, functioning and not cracked or anything like that. Um, and then if you are going to put any kind of end of line treatment, which you can do, there are some very simple filters that uh, can make a difference and improve the overall water quality. Um, those would be other uh, mechanisms or, or components of the system that, uh, that you'd want to change on a semi-regular basis. And so those filters um, would typically be something like a carbon filter. If, if you want to be sure there's no SOCs or VOCs in the water, if you've got that kind of a load around you, which let's be honest, everywhere on the planet has that floating around in the air now. Um, and uh, potentially a particulate filter as well, um, which would typically, you typically have a particulate filter before the pump, um, which wouldn't be super granular, but uh, but enough to protect the the pump itself, the impeller. And then you might have a, a finer filter before it goes to your tap. Um, and so, you know, a 0.5 micron um, filter would, would kind of be something that we'd recommend. Um, and, and you might have a pre-filter in front of that 0.5 micron filter. So just to kind of go through the train, you have a, um, a pre-filter for the pump, then you'd have a spun 
filter, like a 25 to 5 micron um, spun filter, which are very inexpensive and easy to change. And then you would go to a uh, something like a, a Dalton 0.5 micron ceramic filter, which is cleanable and lasts for very long periods of time. So you don't, it's not disposable, not for a very long period of time anyways. And then you might hit a carbon filter up just before it goes to your drinking tap. So I don't know if I'd carbon filter the entire house, but maybe the, the water that I consume, I might carbon filter depending on what the kind of pollutant loads are around me. Sure. And that's a, that's a very cautious system, but maybe required depending on the regulations where you install it, right? Yeah. So the in North America now, we've got the new CSA NSF uh, rainwater harvesting code, which just came out uh, just at the end of last year, the official code. And um, they're going to want a double barrier system. So something like I just described, plus they probably want a UV lamp as well. So they're being very very cautious or potentially an ultra filter, um, which will actually go below 0.5 micron. Um, and what they're trying to do there is take out any viruses or, or uh, harmful microbes. But in reality, when we look at the Australian case again, there've been no major outbreaks in spite of the fact that like, 3 million people drink without any end of line treatment, 6 million people in Australia are actively using rainwater and yet there have been no outbreaks. And What's really interesting about that number is that we cannot make the same claim about centralized water systems. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And it definitely shifts the perspective and, and some of the criticism on the things that we're putting in the mainline systems, especially uh, disinfectants, chlorine, uh, chlorinators and things like that can actually do a lot more damage in some cases than the, micro, um, the microbes that they're in there to protect against. Totally. Well, I mean, chlorine plus organic matter in water creates chloroform, which is a known carcinogen. So when you look at the bias of uh, Maine's water systems, their bias is managing short-term risk over long-term risk. So they'd rather give people cancer than um, have E. coli breakouts, basically. Yeah. No, that makes sense from a liability perspective. It's a lot harder to look retroactively and be like, this is what caused the cancer, whereas the E. coli outbreak might be a lot more easy to identify and put blame on. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take a step back. It's probably something we should have talked about from the beginning, but walk me through some of the basics of sizing and calculating the needs for your own system and how much you could potentially harvest with roof size or the space that you have available. All right, so starting with like what's possible on your site, um, just a really simple formula for folks. If you take the area of your roof in square meters and you multiply it times the ra annual rainfall in millimeters, and I know not everybody uses millimeters, but we should move to metric <laughs> as a society living in the 21st I'm, century. Um, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> we, can, we can end up uh, we end up with, with liters. So you can end up figuring out how many liters you have uh, available to you um, in a year. And this is a really enlightening number for a lot of people. Enlightening in the sense that um, we typically have a lot less water than um, we're used to using. And so in Calgary, the typical Calgarian uses somewhere between 250 and 400 liters a day, which is just unbelievable. It's, it's an enormous amount of water. Um, and so that equates to, um, you know, when I look at the, the rainwater resource and the typical house size in Calgary, um, in order to live entirely off of rainwater here, um, 
you'd pretty much have to move your, we'll go to the extreme, your 400 liters per day down to about 50 liters per person per day um, to kind of live within our rainwater budget. Um, and so one of the hard parts about rainwater system design is that it's really difficult to um, optimize a system where rainfall is constantly changing. So year from year, um, you know, you, you never know how much you're going to get. We've got long-term averages, but um, but those long-term averages mean that there are tail events. So we've got really extreme years where, you know, in 2013, we had twice the amount of rainfall that we typically get in a year in the first month of the spring. Whereas last year, we had no rainfall at all. Literally, we had zero millimeters of rain all year long. That's remarkable. Yeah, and those types of variables must make it really difficult to figure out the calculations for this. Absolutely. And so you need to build um, a risk matrix into the way that you uh, do that calculation. Now, the other interesting thing is that, um, so you've got this fixed roof size, you've got a fairly consistent consumption rate, like you can predict that fairly consistently. Um, and so you're trying to balance your collection surface with your consumption. But the thing is, is that because your consumption is consistent and your rainfall is not, you've got this kind of difficult, transient, mathematical problem that you've got to solve. And that's where the tank comes in. So the tank basically acts as this intermediary buffer that allows us to consume water on a daily basis, which is what we need as humans, um, in spite of the fact that it only rains for a very small percentage of the year. And so the tank itself, especially in our climate, but pretty much in every climate, is usually the most expensive component in the system. Um, in our climate, especially because we typically, if we want to use rain year round, we have to go below grade. And our frost line goes as deep as eight feet here, uh, even further when you go north, 12 to 15 feet sometimes, which means that your tank has to be below that level in the ground so that it doesn't freeze through the wintertime. Um, we just put in a 5,000 gallon a uh, 20,000 liter tank um, not that long ago for a client and it was literally, you know, $20,000. Um, so, you know, you do the math on that and it's not inexpensive to have uh, freeze protected um, water in this, in this ecosystem. So we really have to do a lot of, uh, <clears throat> make a lot of intelligent decisions um, and, and we need a process, a robust process that allows us to iterate between uh, supply, demand, and storage. And, and so we spent a considerable amount of time in our book um, detailing that out. And um, one of the things that really irritated me uh, when I got back from Australia and, and over the last decade is that um, as an engineer, you know, I can, I can use spreadsheets and I can run as many scenarios as I want. Um, I'm very proficient with math. I'm very proficient with Excel. Um, and so I can do those iterations and I can interpret, interpret and interpolate the, the data in order to come up with the best fit scenario. But trying to um, provide that to someone who's not proficient in Excel and not necessarily trained in the same way that I am um, is challenging. And so all of the books that I looked for over the last decade um, had no real good process for optimizing tank size. Um, I even bought a $150 textbook from Wiley on rainwater harvesting. And to be honest, it was garbage. I mean, the, the book itself was garbage. Uh, and when it got to tank optimization, they had this like 
breakout box on the book, basically saying like rainwater harvesting optimization, the optimization of rainwater harvesting tanks um, is something that engineering and architecture companies do and they have proprietary algorithms to do it. And I was like, this is BS. So we actually spent um, about a month, uh, Michelle and I kind of taking all of my other spreadsheets and trying to distill down a process that anybody could follow so that they could find um, an optimized tank. And by optimize, you're, what you're really trying to do in your rainwater harvesting system is minimize the tank size and maximize the, um, the utility. So how do you get the most amount of your system by making your system as small as possible? Because as we shrink the system down, we're able to shrink the cost down. Um, and so you want to minimize the system without compromising. And you started this interview off with resilience. Um, we don't want to compromise on the resilience. And so every person's going to have their own context with regards to what resilience means to them or what risks they're trying to mitigate. Um, so we want to build that into that iterative process. And that's really important. And so one chapter in the book is actually dedicated and we've, we've actually delineated out um, how to build your own Excel spreadsheet to, to run this process. We've also built a professional beautiful looking tool that you can download. I think it's 30 bucks. And so you, we, we've taken that whole chapter, which you can do for free if you want, but if you're not, you can't be bothered. Um, we've built it into an Excel spreadsheet as well that has all of the uh, rainfall data for the US and Canada. And then you can put other rainfall data into it as well if you're in a different country. Um, and it takes you through stepwise to, to get to that uh, resilient, minimized system. Wow, that's a phenomenal resource. Now, let's talk about how someone can prepare to go through the coding and regulatory process where they are. Like you said, there's only a certain amount of recommendations that you can make because these rules change quite significantly depending on where you go around the world or sometimes even within uh, the same country. So how would someone in a city or a suburb perhaps get started researching what the local codes and permits allow for in their area as far as rainwater harvesting systems? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I guess the the short answer is, um, you know, I had the I had a um, uh, a mentor uh, at the beginning of my engineering uh, career, and he said, you know, you can get any answer within three phone calls, and so that's the simple um, the simple answer. But depending on where you live in um, in the world, you need to. Um, basically be able to figure out what your local municipality, state, province, um, federal government um, <clears throat> uh, has stated about this resource. And there could be health concerns um, associated with rainwater because they're uninformed. Um, there could be um, other kind of more opaque reasons why they're not allowing um, rainwater um, to be harvested. And, you know, one of the ones that we're coming up against here in Canada is that um, there's all sorts of water regulations that exist between, like basically uh, treaties that exist between the United States and Canada. Um, and so there's a lot of concern that if the, uh, the large adoption of rainwater harvesting occurs, that it's going to change 
um, river flow rates um, crossing the border, which is a little bit ridiculous because eventually all the water ends up at the, in the sink anyways. All we're doing is, is just slowing it down. Um, so you kind of have to get to the bottom of that. And um, the best way to do it is just to, if you've never dealt with codes or regulatory uh, systems, figure out, you know, start by calling your local municipality. And they will basically um, provide you with a chain of phone calls or conversations that you have to have in order to figure out who's the um, kind of uh, code official that owns that code or those regulations. Um, and uh, from there, you can you can start to make some informed decisions about what you can and can't do in your local municipality. I, I think, um, this is my personal opinion, that... Uh, when rainwater harvesting is not allowed, um, we rapidly enter into a sovereignty issue. And um, uh, as we, as water becomes the kind of predominant issue in the 21st century, which it, which it's in, in the midst of doing right now, um, it's important that we are having these conversations with our regulatory authorities. Uh, because, I mean, when you look at Australia, Australia developed the way that it did because they don't have a water resource. Like, you cannot live in that country, in large portions of that country, without rainwater. And it appears that we're moving into a similar paradigm um, in other parts of the world as well. And so, um, the more people that, that call our regulatory authorities, um, where rainwater is not necessarily legal, the more pressure that's placed upon them to start thinking about this as a, a form of sustainable development. Yeah, it's interesting to see as we move forward and water scarcity and sovereignty becomes a larger issue that is more actively addressed by local municipalities all the way up to federal levels, what kind of reaction they're going to have by incentivizing or disincentivizing the public to take control of their own water resilience. And up until now, I've mostly seen a disincentivization by governing bodies to, to people who are trying to move off grid in all kinds of ways, not just become more resilient with their, their watershed. Yeah, there's a lot of fear. Um, I think it's the, is it the 11th monkey or something like that, that concept that, um, that these, these massive systems that we've created actually require users. And um, there'll be some kind of unspecified number of users that, remove themselves from that system and, and then the next person in line ends up being the reason that the whole system collapses. Um, one example is, is toilet flushing. And so um, as we move to low flow toilets, our sewers are struggling to manage with the lower flow rates of water in them because they were all built at half a percent slope. Um, and so as you remove liquid, the solids increase in percentage and the system stops operating so it's not even a matter of you know um like, like small little things like that have have massive impacts on these grid-based systems and so i think from the regulatory regulatory um agents perspective they're very concerned about collapse of of, of these grid-based systems which are so necessary uh, for humans to coexist um, in cities. I think the the elephant in the room here, though, I just got a, an article that I was reading this morning, actually, before we hopped on this call, from the Post Carbon Institute. Um, the article is called The Future is Rural. And I think the, the elephant in the room that very few people are wanting to talk about is that 
cities are not um, providing us with the sustainable future that we need to move to if we're going to continue to have uh, hum- uh, uh, humanity on the earth. I mean, basically, what's what's in the balance right now is 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 this is going to sound really dire, but human extinction is is like we're facing that um, we're, we're looking that in the face right now based on how we're currently operating on this planet. And a lot of the urbanist, uh, pro-urbanist people on the planet right now are looking at cities as ways of reducing the energy intensity of, of, of humanity. Um, but cities can only operate with high energy density resources, um, which allows us to basically turn cities into organisms. And so if you think about plumbing, sewage, water, electricity, um, natural gas, I mean, these are basically the veins and arteries of a giant organism that just happens to be built up of of humans. Um, And those arteries require enormous hearts, pumps, um, in order to send those resources into the city and then extract them back out. Um, If in fact, and I would argue there is no if, but A lot of people are arguing that these days. If, in fact, we do have a looming peak oil issue on the horizon, um, then as you start to move down the other side of that oil curve, and it really doesn't matter whether it's now or 50 years from now, um, these massive systems start to uh, decompose. They, they, They no longer operate. Um, yeah, the so, maintenance on them is enormous as well, to say nothing of the operating costs, especially if fuel prices start to soar. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you cannot fix water mains at eight feet underground uh, without massive amounts of diesel fuel. So sovereignty becomes a big issue. And, and so that's kind of where this article is going. The future is world. We need low energy decentralized solutions that allow people to take responsibility for their own actions, which is fundamentally the basis of what Mollison was talking about when he wrote the design manual um, for permaculture. Now, local water resilience, as we're talking about, is obviously a much larger concept than merely harvesting and storing rainwater. So what are some of the other essential changes in habits and understanding of water that you'd like to see developed around the world and embraced? So we need to have a more holistic view of waste. Um, One of the early experiments we did here on our site was we started harvesting our gray water from our showers and our washing machine. And because I'm a bit of a loudmouth, I I got in trouble pretty quickly and got a court order with a cease and desist um, order for our gray water system. Um, again, like when we, when we look at the embodied energy of bringing potable water to houses and removing the wastes away, it represents a massive amount, um, up to 25 to 30% of the energy expenditure of a city is just invested in those two functions. Um, and so the other kind of big elephant in the room is that 2030, 2033 is kind of what we're slating for peak phosphorus globally. Now, phosphorus is on the periodic table of elements, which means it's atomic and it's a, it's a base element, which means that um, it can be cycled indefinitely into the future with properly designed systems. So part of looking at water in a more holistic way means that we're finding ecological systems to cycle our nutrients, to so collect our rainwater, cycle our nutrients, 
um, grow our food. Um, and, and essentially like the, the ultimate, um, metaphor to a permaculture system, large or small, is that of a pinball machine. So if we think of water as steel, uh, pinballs, um, our job as designers is to look at all of the water resources that we have access to, um, rain, gray, black, um, dark gray, um, storm water, and figure out how to put paddles into the system to keep those balls in play as long as possible on our sites. And that's ultimately um, how we're going to ensure long-term resilience and sustainability and, and regeneration, which is really what, what we should be aiming for. Absolutely. Now, I really look forward to exploring the larger concept of water resilience and regenerative water systems with you at a later time. But since we focus so much on rainwater harvesting, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you directly and where they can go to buy the book? So uh, folks can uh, connect with us at vergepermaculture.ca. And uh, we've got a ton. I've been writing blogs there for the last 10 years. Um, we've also got a YouTube channel with tons of free resources there. Um, you can go to YouTube and uh, search Verge Permaculture. Um, and then New Society Publishers has uh, access to our book, and we can provide you with a link to that uh, in the show notes below. And um, it's available in both hard copy and e-copy. And if you do end up getting your copy, or if you don't, um, on the Verge Permaculture website, we actually have a rainwater harvesting toolkit with a ton of free resources, as well as all of the <laughs> hundreds of research papers that go to support a lot of the claims or statements that we've made in this particular podcast. Fantastic. And yeah, like you said, all of those will be on the show notes for this episode on the website at AbundantEdge.com. Rob, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really look forward to continuing to collaborate and for doing a follow-up on the larger nuances of resilient water systems, especially in the residential context. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciated the, uh, the conversation and I uh, look forward to future ones. Marvelous. All right. You have a great rest of your day and I'll be in touch again soon. Great. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.